Thank you. Um, in the big black Bibles up the back, uh, we are on page 676, if that is a help to anyone. Uh, let's, let's read uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we know the song, and so we think we know the story. We three kings from Orient are, right? You can picture them, can't you? Uh, three very small kings astride somewhat biologically inaccurate cardboard camels, uh, dressed up in bits of old sheet and slightly too large dressing gowns, bearing gifts, precious gifts of shoeboxes covered in gold glitter, leaving a sparkling trail behind them. You know, normally the eldest of the three gets a speaking role, something along the lines of, look, a star, let's follow it. And then after several comical mishaps, they, they get to uh, the stable, to the manger, and they take their places opposite the shepherds in a nice little neat row. And they look about as awed as it's possible for five-year-olds can get to get. <laughs> and everyone loves a good nativity play. In fact, who was in one as a kid and who was a wise man? Anyone? You probably were, you just can't remember, right? <laughs> we love nativity plays. It's great. It's a great way for kids to be involved and, um, and, and its cuteness died up to 11. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. But I wonder if, if the skit of the wise man and nativity helps to, to somewhat misinform us about what the story actually is, the real story behind the three kings of Orient are. Because I hate to break it to you, there probably weren't three. They certainly weren't kings. 
and they weren't from the Orient, <laughs> at least not the Orient that we think of. So who were they? Well, to find out, we have to begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, I mentioned that they weren't kings. Well, who were they? Well, wise men is probably closer to the truth. And the word Matthew uses here is magi. Magi. Sounds unfamiliar, but actually you know this word. You know it because this is where we get the word magician from. Magi. But these weren't illusionists. Not, they're not tricksters. They're not kind of sorcerers. The Magi were the royal scholars of the ancient world. They were kind of um, court intellectuals uh, on the payroll of a king or an emperor uh, designed to give um, advice, uh, to help out in, in courtly matters, to give wisdom to the king. And they were experts. They were experts in things like astronomy, astrology and natural sciences. So they were scientists, they were priests as well. They were experts in religion on top of all that. They were kind of the ancient equivalent of the university academic, which is like half a congregation, so you've got to, you, know, you know what this is all about. Where were they from then? Where were they from, these, these scholars? Well, Matthew tells us simply that they were from the East. So why do we say that they are from the Orient? Well, uh, Orient is actually just means East. <laughs> But when we think of Orient, we think of East Asia, China, that sort of thing. They weren't probably, almost certainly, from that far away. No, they were probably from just east of Judea, right? Probably from an area called Babylonia, which is now modern-day Iraq. So um, there weren't, there weren't, there weren't kings. Uh, they were from the east. Um, were there three of them? Well, maybe. <laughs> We actually just don't know. It could have been two, could have been three, could have been four, could have been eight, could have been 12. Uh, why do we have three? Well, there were three gifts. And so someone in their in brilliant logic figured out that maybe if there were three gifts, then it took three people to hold those gifts. And so we have these three kings, <laughs> these three men. So I'm sorry to have ruined a favorite Christmas carol. Um, we have to um, kind of mess with the lyrics a little bit now. We have to sing, We indeterminate number of astrolog astrologer priests from probably Babylonia are. doesn't have quite the same ring to it, uh, but at least it's accurate, and I think that's the most important thing. Uh, but what, what is uh, more startling about this story is, is less about really who these guys were or where they were from, but what they saw. What did they see? They saw a star. A star that rose in the west. Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it some other kind of miraculous celestial event? We don't know. But whatever it was, it was startling enough that these learned and distinguished men travelled hundreds of kilometres across the desert to find what this star represented what did it represent well in ancient times uh, people assumed that great political events and transitions uh, were always accompanied by an astronomical 
event as well. So seeing this great star in the West, and particularly one that seems to stick out particularly as being unusual and unique, it would have been reasonable for them to assume, these learned men, uh, that a new king was born, or a new emperor, a new royal person. And that might be enough, I think, for them to travel westward to find this king, to investigate for themselves what's going on. So as they travel westward, well, where would that take them? If they're starting in Babylonia, of course, it would eventually take them to Israel, to Judea. And of course, naturally, to Jerusalem. Like, where else would you find a newborn king than the holy city of Jerusalem? Surely that's where they would find the reason for this star. Surely there they would find an, an excitement and a joy that was, would match their own But instead, they find something quite different, don't they? The people they meet are shown to be full of paranoia, ignorance, and fear. It's startling, isn't it? This is such great news. A newborn king, a star in the sky, and yet the people for whom this star is for are full of paranoia, ignorance, and fear. So they arrive in Jerusalem, and first of all, King Herod enters the scene. This is like the classic bad guy. Okay, this is the bad guy other bad guys are modelled off. In my mind, he looks and sounds like Jafar from Aladdin. Okay, we've got that. I'm pretty sure that that was um, what he looked like and sounded like. Uh, so, King Herod slash Jafar. Who was he historically? Well, uh, for the last three decades, um, up until this time, about 6 BC, he had been the king of Judea. Well, when I say king, he, wasn't, he was kind of a king, but he was a puppet king. He was a lackey of the Roman Empire, of the Roman emperor, put in place in Judea to kind of make sure that the, to keep the people under wraps, to keep them um, uh, peaceful. But he's known in history now as a total tyrant, a really nasty piece of work. And as often happens with tyrants, he eventually became totally paranoid. You know, it's the classic tale, right? Tyrant king tries to control and hold on to power and so starts to think that everyone close to him is against him. And so Herod the Great eventually had his sons, some of his wives and others close to him executed for plotting against him. This kind of gives us a bit of a picture of this man, doesn't it? This is a a man full of paranoia and fear and trepidation, trying desperately to hold on to the power he thinks he has. And this is the kind of man that the Magi gain an audience with. So, Herod's reaction then in Matthew isn't too surprising. Our Bible translation says, um, if you were with an NIV, uh, says that he was disturbed. <laughs> It doesn't quite capture what's going on here. The literal word here is that he was shaking with terror, like literally and physically shaking with terror and trepidation. So far from being overjoyed about the, the birth of the Messiah, Herod's terrified that he's going to lose his job. For an already paranoid man, news of a, of a new king is like a red rag to a bull. So what's he do? Well, he has to put a stop to it, doesn't he? 
has to deal with this problem, this threat to his power. Herod's often singled out as the bad guy, and rightly so, because he is murderous and conniving and more than a bit mad. And so he puts things into place to, um, to deal with this problem. He says, he calls the Magi back, and he, I can only imagine he says this with kind of the classic evil voice. Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may worship him. I think it's something like that. Worship is what he says, but murder is on his mind. He's trying to play the Magi like a fiddle. He's trying to use them to find information about who this child is so that he can go and deal with him. And if we read later on in Matthew, we see that his attempts to deal with this newborn king led to the deaths of many, many children in Bethlehem. But Herod's not the only one here to take the news badly. He's not the only one for whom this new Messiah is a threat. Uh, look at how Matthew portrays the priests, the religious leaders of the time. Now, if not Herod, then at least you'd expect these guys to be excited about the Messiah. After all, their whole job, literally, is to explain the teachings of the Old Testament, which point to the fact that God would send a saviour Messiah to Israel. That's their whole job. So surely, surely, as the Magi come and explain what they're here for, that they would be excited and gearing up to go with them to Bethlehem. But all they do here is, in response to Herod's question, they give the correct answer and they kind of fade back into the background. Their silence reveals the attitude of their hearts. Because these are men we know from here and then from later in the gospel uh, who loved intellectual superiority. They held a monopoly on spiritual power and spiritual guidance in, uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea. And they were not willing to let go of that. Should a real Messiah turn up, they would have to relinquish their authority to someone far greater than they and that is not something they're prepared to do. And of course, later when Jesus begins his public ministry, it's these priests, again, along with other religious leaders who oppose him. And actually, they end up inheriting Herod's murderous intent. So we have Herod, the paranoid one. We have the religious leaders in their kind of arrogance and superiority. But finally, there's one more group here who also do not um, receive the news well. And it's a group that's often overlooked when, we, um, when this story is looked at and read out. It's not just Herod who shakes with terror. Do you notice that? It's Herod, yes. But Matthew tells us that the whole city of Jerusalem was shaking with terror. The whole city, every single citizen was joined together in kind of a, a terrified stake and of angst around this news. Why would that be? Surely the common people would be excited about the, a new ruler, a new king who's finally come, sent by God. What's going on? Well, let's think about it. The new king threatens Herod's political power. Yeah, He threatens 
the priests and the religious leaders' spiritual power, yep, what does he threaten the citizens? He threatens their personal security. See, Roman emperors did not respond well to uprisings. A brief look at history shows us that. And any rebellion against Herod, the puppet king of the emperor, would no doubt bring down the force of the Roman army. And history shows that that kind of rebellion and that kind of response never goes well for the citizens of a country. In fact, in, in for, the, for the Jewish people, it's not, it was only a hundred years before or so uh, when they had a, a massive rebellion and a massive um, putting down that rebellion and a real, an incredible slaughter of people. So, so these people in Jerusalem, they're quaking with fear along with Herod. Why? Because they think that this new king might rebel against the Roman emperor and, and violence and terror would be brought down upon them. And so they're afraid. Can you see that how these, different, these three different people act? We've got Herod, we've got his paranoia, we've got the, the religious leaders, they're kind of ignorant, and we've got the common people, the citizens who are in fear. People who should have been hearing news and flocking to Bethlehem because this is the fulfillment of their spiritual history for the last thousands of years. And yet instead they are paranoid, they are passive, and they're petrified. Instead, Matthew shows us that the most unlikely of people are the ones who actually do make the pilgrimage. Pagan astrologers who don't even follow Israel's God. The Magi's reaction to their imminent meeting with the king is shown in contrast with those in Jerusalem. And even, in fact, even Matthew struggles to capture the emotion of what's going on. Literally, he writes, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they saw the star, they were filled with abundant, overflowing, exuberant joy inexpressible, rapturous. And their, their generosity of their spirit as they come to, this, to Bethlehem, to this house where Jesus is, is only matched by the generosity of their gifts. They bring with them gold, a fitting tribute for royalty, and frankincense and myrrh, a precious and exotic incense and spices. There's something deeper going on here. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet wrote some 800 years earlier. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And all from Sheba, that is a foreign land, will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of of the Lord. So with these gifts in hand, these precious gifts, they come before the baby Jesus and they are overcome. Again, uh, bow down doesn't quite capture what's going on here. Literally, they collapse to the floor, these prestigious men. They collapse to the ground and they worship 
And this is more than just simply paying homage or respect. This is the sort of worship that's reserved only for deity. Because the Magi had a sense that this was no mere human king, not just another in the line of Herod or another in the line of emperors. Somehow they knew that this baby boy was worthy of true worship as God. How the Magi respond to Jesus is set up in Matthew as a pattern. It's a pattern that we see over and over again in the New Testament. How people with faith respond to Jesus when they come into contact with him. First, they recognize Jesus as king. They come to see Jesus as the rightful ruler of the world, the one who can claim the world because he made it, the one who can claim our allegiance because he made us. Throughout the Gospels, we see people doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus, tearing down through a roof of a house or climbing a tree so that they can see. They do whatever it takes to find and get to Jesus because they want to know him and give him their allegiance as king. So they recognize him as king, but then they worshiped him as God. They see Jesus as more than just a man, but God born as a man. Emmanuel, God with us. True deity clothed in true humanity. And before him they bow down and worship, not just with their bodies, but with their hearts and their spirits and their minds. They worship him and then they give him what is most precious to them. Because Jesus asks of us more than just precious metals and incense. He asks of us our very selves. He asks all that we have. He wants all that we are to be offered to him to be used for his service. And why can he make such an audacious claim? Because he already owns all things. Everything that we have is simply a gift from him. And so we can give it back to him as a willing and free gift. And then finally, they experience deep and lasting joy. The joy that comes from knowing, as the Magi did, that Jesus has come to be the end of every story, the answer to every question, a light for those in darkness and home for those who are lost. But the Magi aren't just a pattern for how people respond. They're also a pattern of who will respond. Because remember that Jesus was a Jew born in Judea and his ministry was largely among the Jews. But we know that by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the vision for the message of Jesus is not just for the Israel, but for the world. And so the Magi here, right at the beginning, are a hint of what's to come, that this Gospel would be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. And within two millennia of this happening, the whole world would ring out to the sound of joy to the world. So the story of the Magi is the opening chapter to the most glorious and wonderful story of all. And even here at the beginning, Matthew is setting us up for what the grand scope of the story was going to look like. And because he's setting us up for the grand scope, that means that this story of the Magi, the three wise men and Jesus, cannot all be just light and wonder and glory because the story of the gospel is that God in his light 
comes to the earth in its darkness. And so here in the story, the light of the star is contrasted with the darkness of the city. Can you see that? Matthew does want us to long to be like the Magi, to be like full of joy and humility and faith, to respond to Jesus and proclaim him as king and worship him. Yes, he wants us to be like the Magi, but he also wants us to see ourselves reflected in those who reject him, those who reject the newborn Christ. He wants us to see ourselves reflected in Herod, and in the priests, and in the citizens of Jerusalem. And as we look into our own hearts, and as we look at ourselves deeply, aren't we all a bit like each of them? Aren't we all a bit like the citizens of Jerusalem? Look how the Magi willingly gifted their treasures, their their most precious items to Jesus. But the citizens, what do they care about? Just their own security and well-being. I wonder if that rings true for you. Because we know that accepting Jesus means giving up a lot. Actually, it means giving up more than just our material possessions, at least our hold on them, our grasping on them. No, it means more than that. It means giving up something even more precious, particularly to our Western culture. It means giving up our individual and personal autonomy. It means saying, I'm not the king of my own life. I'm just a subject of the king of kings. It means saying to Jesus, no longer what I want, but what you want. And even even if what you want is not what I want, even if what you want, Jesus, goes against my deepest desires, even if what, what you want leaves me without reputation, without status, without pleasure, Jesus says, I want it all. I want you. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So there's a little bit of the citizens, I think, in each of us. Um, But there's a little bit of the priests that we uh, are reflected in as well. Because look, the Magi were the best and the brightest of their country, and yet they risked their reputation to find a king worth worshipping. The Jewish priests, on the other hand, stayed silent and stayed where they were, wanting to safeguard their intellectual superiority. And don't we all do the same thing? Don't we love to think that we can work it all out for ourselves, that we can figure out this thing called life and existence? We love to kind of happily cobble together a philosophy of life that kind of feels good and seems right at the time. And yet given the opportunity to explore the reality of who Jesus is and the existence of a God who loves us, we very easily kind of look down our nose. And if we're Christians here, we're thinking, oh, no, I don't do that. I'm not like that. But it's the religious people here that Matthew describes. It's the religious people who miss the Messiah. Even in our own tribe of Christianity, what we call being evangelical or reformed, we prize academic knowledge and intellectual and achievement above all else. 
We love those who know their Bibles back to front and inside out in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and we elevate them to hero status. We love theological debate, and we love our conferences. Like, to bits, we love our Christian conferences. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of these things, but the danger is that we believe that our value comes from what we know rather than who we know. In all our learning, we can miss the chance to have a relationship with the one all learning points to. Isn't it true that Jesus later on told uh, us what his prerequisite is for having him as our king? We have to become like little children, full of humble faith. Otherwise, we can never become citizens of his kingdom. And finally, even though it's hard to hear, isn't there also a bit of Herod in each of us as well? In the passage, it's the star of the king that rises, and it's the magi who fall down. But for Herod, he would much prefer the king to fall down and for himself to rise. And don't we prefer exactly the same thing? We far prefer for our own power and prestige to be lifted up so that others might see us as kings. And the attitude taints everything that we do, doesn't it? How often have we even done a good deed of service? How often have we been kind or merciful and compassionate and heard the little voice within saying, now others will see how good you are. Now they'll see how great you are. Now they'll see how kind you are. We learn to grasp onto control of our lives and our circumstances, even our relationships. And when that control begins to slip a bit, as soon as we feel like we're losing our grip on our life, how do we respond? Well, either we become anxious and stressed, we become crabby or resentful. Or on the other hand, we begin to take actions at the expense of others to regain our place in the pecking order. Isn't it true that as we seek to climb the ladder of life, we become uh, envious of those above us and feeling superior to those who are below us? Now, I'm not saying that we're crazed tyrants. By God's grace, I think we're not. But... In all, we all, I think, in some way wish that our star would rise highest and for God, if he exists, to fall down in front of us. And that leads to all sorts of problems. So again, I'm sorry if I kind of cast a shadow across this favoured Christmas story, but if we're going to really come to grips with the story of the Magi, these three kings, we cannot just focus on the light. We have to see also the shade because this is a story with teeth. This is a story with critique. This is a story that should confront us. There is sharpness here, and perhaps more than we realise, but... There's also hope. In fact, there's more hope, I think, than we know. This chapter paints the backdrop for the painting of the rest of the gospel story. The details have yet to be filled in, but the form, the shape of it is there. And do you see the shape of the gospel, the good news, 
in the Magi, in the Jewish people, and in Jesus. Because isn't it true that the one who rises higher than all, the eternal King, Jesus, who has existed for all time and before it, allows himself to fall lower than all? Isn't that the message of Christmas, that God leaves heaven for a life on earth? Isn't it true that Jesus, the King of heaven, was born in humiliation of poverty, lived under the humiliation of his enemies, and died hung on the humiliation of the cross? See, the good news of Christmas and the good news of all times is that the King was born lived, died, and rose to save people like you and people like me. Now, someone will say, come on, Pete, you can't preach Easter at Christmas. Like, that's completely mixing it all up. But I say to you, I have to. I must. We, ha- we cannot stay here in Bethlehem. We have to go to Jerusalem and to Calvary and to the tomb. We have to, and I think even Matthew does here. See, Jesus was uh, given another gift at the end of his life that matches the gift he was given at the beginning. At the end of his life, he was given the gift of 75 pounds of incense with which to embalm his body. And remember what incense it was that he was given from, from Nicodemus, actually, at the end of the Gospel of John? Aloes and myrrh. Isn't that a beautiful poetry? The one who was laid in a borrowed manger would also eventually be laid in a borrowed tomb. And the one who was given precious gifts for his birth would be given precious gifts for his death. The one who was given myrrh to enjoy as a baby would be wrapped in it and bathed in it as a dead man. The one whose star rises higher than all allowed himself to fall lower than all. So low even that he might experience death to experience the penalty, the consequence of a world that lives in darkness. He chose not to stay in heaven with glory, but chose to come and share the darkness of the city. He came to die for the Herods, the priests, the citizens, the Magi, For you and also for me. This is the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is to come and find Jesus, to get to him no matter what it takes. No matter however many books you have to read, no matter how many arguments you have to have, however many discussions and thinking you have to do, find Jesus. Find him and let go of your own attempts to feel secure and instead come into the eternal safety of belonging to the eternal king. Let go of useless faith in your own intellectual achievements as if they are worth anything. Instead, find the one who gives true wisdom and true understanding. And let go of your own desire for self-rule and your need for self-importance. Instead, find the abundant joy that comes from knowing and worshipping the King. And we don't have to trek hundreds of kilometers to find him. 
That's what's different between now and for the Magi. The Magi had to risk life and limb to find him. But the risen Christ is no longer confined to that house in Bethlehem. He reigns from heaven and he's available to anyone who asks, anyone who comes to him, anytime, anywhere we can come and bow down and worship him. In the light of our glorious and eternal king, for us now every night is a holy night. So as we bring our Advent series to, the, to a close, let's pray together and the band will come up. Heavenly Father, we uh, come in awe of Jesus Christ, the perfect one born as a baby who lived as we live and died as we die, but rose again to new life so that in him we might find a true king who gives us true life. Lord, there is so much in our world which is dark and there's so much in our own hearts which is dark and we can ignore it, we can justify it, we can rationalize it away. But Father, we need forgiveness and we need healing and we need joy because joy is something so lacking in this world. Father, give us joy. Give us the joy of knowing Jesus the King, the one who is and is and is to come. Amen.